Greetings, filmmakers and film buffs, and welcome back to Framing the Shot, the show that takes a deep dive into the building blocks of cinema, animation, television, and beyond. On today's episode, we embark on our first thought experiment, a hypothetical situation in which my guest and I must design a film based upon a particular set of circumstances or rules. In this first experiment, we'll be tackling the extremely tricky subject of turning a cartoon into a live-action film. It's been attempted dozens of times over the past 30 years, but rarely is it successful. In part one of two episodes on this subject, we begin with an exploration of some key examples where the adaptations went horribly wrong, and what we might have done differently if we had been in the director's chair. And, being that this is a subject I'm rather fond of and frustrated with, you can imagine I have a lot to say. So, come along with us as we explore the wild world of adaptation in Episode 4, From Cartoon to Live Action, Part 1. So, in today's episode, we are getting into a topic area that um, is currently somewhat being discussed has been discussed many times in the past but i don't think has been necessarily approached in a methodical way so i want to start off recapping your feelings on the uh sonic the hedgehog film because we were getting into something pivotal with um like the motivations behind why the film looks and feels the way it does yeah um so the sonic movie (laughs) i don't even know where to start with that i guess one thing to put out there is that you know it is now known that the company that made this movie and more specifically sonic uh it's paramount pictures that's producing it it's sega that has to have approved and you know, put the license up there. And Blur Studios, who did the special effects. Right. So, it has been confirmed now that they're going to redo the Sonic's look. How much they're going to redo it, we don't really know. But it has been confirmed that based on sheer audience reaction, they're going to redo it. Which, really, if you don't include what happened in All the Money in the World, which is a very different circumstance, This is really the first time this has happened, where due to fan outcry, the movie is actually doing something different, which really, I think, sets a fascinating precedent for movies like this, or just movies in general. Is it going to become a court of public opinion for how we make movies? That's a scary thought as a filmmaker, Uh, but when I found out they were actually going to go through with that, it did make me think about that. But as far as their motivations for doing this, the motivations to make a Sonic movie is the motivation to make any movie like this, like Lord of the Rings, Mario Brothers, um, a new Star Wars movie, um, a Marvel movie. It's to grab hold of an existing fan base. It is almost like it's a movie that hypothetically shouldn't fail because you'll automatically get the people who love the previous incarnations in droves. So it's not that hard. At the very least, you have to do something that's like the game or book, and you'll be safe. 
Now we get into what they did, uh, which is make Sonic this more humanoid, semi-realistic, but not really hedgehog. And then they, what looks like they reversed all of his proportions for some reason. Why they did that, I want to say I don't know, except maybe the director or whoever decided that. To comment on that directly, I believe there was a was there a thing a post he made after the posters dropped. Okay, where he was trying to defend it. Okay, Uh, and if I can find that, I did not know he was he tried to defend it. Because I would be very curious to see his reasoning for doing that. And I'm not even the biggest Sonic fan, but what they did is like if you took made a Harry Potter movie, but put the scar on the back of his head. It's like, sure, he still has a scar, but why do it? What's the reasoning? Uh, it looks like the new news has covered up any old news. But mm. from what I recall, and... Maybe I'll find it later just to confirm it. I believe there was a post that he made on Twitter or made in response to a interview on one of those gaming websites mm-hmm. referring to the fact that we made the design changes in order to integrate Sonic into a real-world setting. We did it for the sake of realism and logic. Those are not exact words, but that is basically what he expressed. So I get the concern about that. I do. But that design still doesn't apply in the re- Here's the thing, Sonic in general, Sonic the video game does not apply in the real world logic. You can't make it do that. No. It's just not possible. The only way you could and this would destroy the franchise as a whole, is if you literally made him a a hedgehog that went fast. Mm -hmm. But that would be a whole other type of wrong, too. Which then goes back to the original point. You cannot base Sonic in the real world. Not only because he's a fast blue hedgehog, but the villain, Dr. Eggman, Dr. Eggman is the most cartoonish villain you will ever find. One of the most, yes. Yes, one of the most cartoonish ever. So to try to base that in reality, though reasonable, actually, though casting-wise was perfect, will only hurt you. It, It doesn't... His outfit is ridiculous. His look is ridiculous. His inventions are insane. None of it adds up at all. And I think part of the problem was is that the Sonic video games really toe this thin line of being very cartoony, very much for kids, and then randomly epic and serious at times. I'm speaking more of the later ones, from what I've noticed. Like, isn't there one with the when the evil hedgehog like has a le- legitimately just has a sniper rifle for some reason? Yeah, it's the Shadow the Hedgehog game. He just comes into it with a with a AK-47. Oh, AK-47. Why? Why? And see there, that I don't think that one, who knows if that one did well, I wouldn't think so. Adding realism into the Sonic world, you just can't do You have to embrace the fact that it's insane. That it's crazy. It would have been better to set it in a very strange futuristic world. Or near future world, if you need to. Right. 
That would have been better. Because as far as I'm aware, the games take place on a world called Mobius. Well, there or, you go. It's not even if, Earth. Right. Or if the games don't, I don't know if the games actually had a name. That is the name they give the planet in the two cartoons. Yeah. Both American cartoons. Uh, both of which are drastically different designs of supposedly the same place. One of them is a goofy universe, mm. and the other is a very serious post-apocalyptic robotnic basically one we are the resistance fighting against him universe (laughs) i didn't know that was a thing oh my god see that's the other problem when sonic is a hell of a franchise to decide to turn into a movie because it's like throwing a dart and if you hit the middle you'll make a ton of money but if you don't you'll lose everything and the reason why i say that it's because Sonic is such a hard fan base. You basically have two options now that I'm thinking about it. Appease the fan base and make a terrible movie. Or I shouldn't say terrible movie. Appease the fan base, but make a movie that's really not relatable to a lot of other people. It, yes. That, that's the better word. Right. Because it could. It doesn't necessarily have to be terrible. Yeah. It can be perfectly awesome. Yes. But you alienate a ton of people outside of the fan base who won't. You may bring some new people in. Be really alienating a lot of people. Right. Or, yeah, that's really your option. You have to, or actually, no. Or you can, no, I don't. That's why, okay, that's why it's so hard. Does it even work? If you make a movie that does not appeal to fans, it's too neutral and too middle ground, will it really appeal to anyone? And that's what I'm talking about the Sonic movie specifically at the moment, but yes, it's, you know what? It's like when I first saw the poster for this where they didn't show his face. Yeah. When I looked at that, my initial thought was, oh, this doesn't need to be made. This doesn't need to be made. It's That's what everyone's parents already said. This looks like hot garbage. Yeah. But here we are. It's happening. We're here. So in that case, are we really surprised by the reaction? We shouldn't be. The director sure as hell shouldn't be. Even though he seems to be. Right. And I just told you, I was telling you earlier, every movie adaptation is adapted from something that was popular in public consciousness. Now, sometimes you do adaptations of books that weren't necessarily popular. They were niche titles, but Mm -hmm. because they're well-written, you have something to work with. But most times you are adapting something that was well-crafted to begin with and very likely had an enormous fan base. Or a sizable one at that. And the reason that it was popular at all was because it was well-designed, well-written, and Mm well-crafted. You rarely adapt something... For the better. You rarely adapt something that was bad and you made it better. But then, of course, you're making a remake. You you are doing a re-envisioning. And I don't know if that exactly exists like taking something from one medium and it was bad and turning it into a completely different medium and now it's good. I can't think of one like that. I can think of remakes that worked, but I can't think of exactly what you're saying. Exactly. Right, because remakes of a movie being remade into another movie happens. Mm-hmm. A book maybe getting a sequel or a spinoff that's better, that happens, but you rarely rewrite a book. Yeah. I don't even know if that anyone bothers with that. Yeah. It's, um, it's incredibly rare. Game of Thrones is the only example where... They added or changed a few things, but that's over eight seasons. Yes. 
that is, that is a example of something where they they made a lot of alterations and it becomes its own potentially better thing because mm-hmm. I don't think enough people who are fans of the show actually read the books. Oh, and um, oddly enough, another HBO show, True Blood, which ended terribly, but for the first four seasons, with the exception of the first three episodes of the first season, it's totally different from the books and it's better. It's a weird example where that happens. I don't know how, I don't know why, but like usually fans of the books even admit, yeah, I like the books, but the show is better. Mm-hmm. It's rare. Again, it does happen, but it's exceedingly rare. Oddly enough, it seems to have only happened with TV shows where things have time to change over time, over yeah. many episodes. So if if the thing that was created and built a fan... if if something exists that has a fan base, it only has a fan base because it was good to begin with. Mm-hmm. Why would you ever bother changing the core elements that make it good? Because anytime you adapt something, you are adapting it to a new medium, and that new medium has new paradigms. Mm-hmm. That new medium has new requirements because and- you can't you can't express the same information in the same manner. You have to make adaptations. But that does not mean you have to change the look of anything. It does not mean you have to change the relationships of anything unless it streamlines the story. Mm-hmm. And it does not mean that you have to... You have to simplify the story necessarily. Like, simplify the extremes of your world or the extremes of your of your character's or world's attributes. Mm-hmm. Like, you can have a really out-there concept, and you don't necessarily have to simplify it or change it so long as you impart to the audience what it's all about in a clever way. Mm-hmm. And that can be done. But in this case, they stripped most of it out. And I knew they would. Why they would is beyond me, but I knew they would. We're not going to adapt the original games. We're not going to have Sonic and Tails and all the other characters as the main characters. We're going to have a human share the screen. Yeah. We're going to be on Earth because apparently that's still necessary to connect would, an audience with a fictional character. You would think, and regardless of your your our opinion of this other movie, you would think after they made Avatar that people would be okay with Setting something on another planet. Yeah, James Cameron's Avatar. James, oh, sorry. James Cameron's Avatar. You would think after doing that, that more films would try this. Except not, and I think I have a theory why. Well, that still had to draw you in with humans from the front end. Sure. But we were, unless you include the extended cut, but let's not for the sake of argument, never once were they on Earth. Never once. No, they were not. But yes, you had to be drawn in with humans. That's fair. And here's the thing: in the Sonic version, there is isn't doesn't the TV show have a kid friend? Like he's this the, human the, kid. The uh, the Japanese series Sonic X. Yes, the the characters are have have an explosion occur in a uh, a dimensional portal opens and all the main heroes and Doctor Robotnik are dropped into our Earth. Mm. So in that case, once again, they do it. And but that would work better as a movie then, slightly. Because it's like it acknowledges they're from this completely different world. 
and they're being thrust into our world. Or if you need to set it in a future world, I swore it was maybe in the comics or something. There was like Sonic had this friend that was a kid, I thought. No. No? As far hmm. as I know. Hmm. Well. The comics and the cartoon, the original American cartoons never had humans except for Robotnik okay. and his sidekick. Okay. That was it. Well, I could have sworn. Well, either way then. Point is, set it in a future world with these animals have Dr. R the human, Robotnik, have Robotnik played by an actual human. That's fine. There you've got your person. And his sidekick, too. But that's really the only way you can do a movie like this, if you're going to do a movie like this. If so, if a producer told me, do you want to direct the Sonic movie, I'd say no. And not just because this, the franchise doesn't fascinate me that much, but also because that's like stepping on a landmine to get to a pile of gold. And you don't even know if you're going to get that pile. Of you gold. might not. No, yeah, it's you know, it's exactly like. Actually, you know what? It's like, yeah, the gold is underground, but to get yeah, to get to it, you have to step on a landmine and hope that the landmine blew up deep enough to get to the gold. There you go. Or or magically forged a shovel for you. Yeah. Now that's what making this movie is like, and. Because either the hole won't it won't have blown up enough and you don't get the gold, or it blew up too much and the gold is basically incinerated. Perfect. That's what this movie is like. Yes. And it's like you got either. And here's the thing: either way, when you're making a Sonic movie like this, either way your foot's getting blown off. Either way. Either way. Yeah. Either way you're screwed. Yeah. But you might get the gold. So. It's also kind of egotistical to think a little bit egotistical if you think you can turn a movie that's from such a beloved fan base like that into something like that. And then it's even doubly so to think you can make strong artistic changes to it. Right. Because that, that is the core of what I was saying is Sonic's face, even though his body has elongated and changed slight proportions, his face has barely ever changed. Yeah, It's never always changed. remained the same elements. His eyes are always a single fused uh, eyeball. His nose is always the same shape. His cheeks and his smile are always the same shape. It changed his head completely. Yeah, completely. You look at it, it doesn't look like Sonic. I don't even know what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. Some shots it kind of looks okay. When he's not when you when don't see his face, <laughs> it looks okay. But um to move off of that coincidental talking point. Yes. Yes. Uh have you seen the Inspector Gadget movie? The first one, yeah. How long ago? Year it's been ages. Did you only see it once? I've seen it twice as a kid. I do know a weird fact about that movie, mm -hmm. if I may say. Have you seen the film Election? Yes. So, fun fact about that. Directed by Alexander Payne. Great movie. Highly recommend it. So, uh, that movie is actually based on a previous creation, a previous thing. Another book called Election. Alexander Payne shoots Election with Matthew, with Matthew Broderick, makes the movie, and keeps the ending of the book. This is actually, oddly enough, to what we're talking about. Keeps the ending of the book. They edit it together, okay? And get everything all set and squared away. And then they realize that it doesn't work for whatever reason. Now, I don't, remember, I don't know the ending of the book. I've never read the book. But it doesn't work. So he goes to the writer and says, hey, what if we did this instead for the movie? And he's like, I love it. Or the writer's like, I love it. it sounds great. So literally, 
Matthew Broderick shot all of Election, then shot all of Inspector Gadget, and then apparently three weeks after finish rapping on Inspector Gadget, did one last two more see one or two more scenes for Election again, and he had to regain some weight too to do it. Oh, because he had actually tri- slimmed up for um, Inspector Gadget. Right. Yeah, he does look a bit pudgy in election. So then, for, but for those last two scenes, they had to pudgy up again. Hmm. So that's why they waited a little while. So, but that's just a fun little fact is that, like, when you watch that last scene in, uh, it's either New York or DC, when he sees her and she's like so successful, that was shot after they did everything else for Inspector Gadget. Yeah. But I'm sorry. You okay? That was just my fun fact about it. No, I love that. That's yeah. a that's an interesting thing to note. Yeah. Because you don't think about that. You you don't think about the shooting schedules being so small enough compared to the production time of the whole film that you can yeah. interweave uh, and things like that. Do you know where I knew that? I learned that at the Savannah Film Festival when Alexander Payne came by. He did a talk, and he talked about it. Really? Because someone asked him about election. And I forget what they were asking. Oh, someone asked him about, like, what was it like to work with Matthew Broderick, I think was the question. And then he went down into not just that, but what the story I just told. He oddly also talked, someone asked him about, um, <laughs> this was kind of awkward. Someone raised their hand during the time when they could ask questions. And they said, can I ask you about Jurassic Park 3? Because fun fact, Alexander Payne co-wrote Jurassic Park 3. Mm-hmm. And Alexander Payne said, sure. And the guy said, what was it like writing? Writing that he's like, honestly, it's the most fun I've ever had. <laughs> and that's all he's, nobody asked about him. He's like, well, why did you make the Velociraptor say Alan, Alan? But no one asked him about that. But he admits that it was a blast writing about dinosaurs. That's interesting. So, yeah. so the Inspector Gadget movie is a point of contention for me that will forever be a point of contention because it is what I consider to be the number one worst adapted film from a cartoon that I know. That's about to be beat, buddy. With Sonic. (laughs) But okay. I don't necessarily think so. I don't necessarily think so. I will have to see because I think regardless of whether they change his design, I will see this film just to know what happened. Okay. But uh, even compared to the Super Mario Brothers movie, because I would have talked about that, but I think that's been talked about a lot. Yeah. Inspector Gadget has not been harped upon enough, and I've thought about it way more. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you also familiar with the cartoon, the original yes, cartoon? I am. Okay. I didn't watch that as much, but I remember it would play on Boomerang sometimes. The cartoon is called Inspector Gadget, but it's one of those instances where that's just the name of the show. He is not the lead. Mm -hmm. The lead is his niece, Mm -hmm. and his niece is super intelligent, super resourceful, has a a very humanoid dog that can walk, kind of talk, and think autonomously, and he always puts on costumes to... Uh, sneak around and and watch after Inspector Gadget just to, quote-unquote, keep an eye on him, keep him safe so that he doesn't hurt himself. Uh, Not sure how a fully metallic man can hurt himself, but... Either way. Dr. Claw is a ominous 
shadowy figure. You never see his face. You only ever see one arm, either from one side or the other. <laughs> he has a cat, so it's it's very stereotypical, mm -hmm. but they maintain his uh, ominous, intimidating quality because of the voice that Frank Welker does, that, that deep, guttural, yes, rolling sound. Yeah. That is a good, scary voice. The side villains that appear in every episode are are extremely quirky and are usually one shot. You don't see them in any other episodes. Some of them reappear a few times, but they are your primary antagonist, whereas Dr. Claw is your evil emperor lording over everything and trying to um, coordinate the different plans to steal something that will uh, improve his evil empire. Mm -hmm. To adapt a show where the the title character is a complete buffoon and this young girl is the actual protagonist seems to have been an issue for the people adapting the film mm -hmm. because they did they completely just went away from that they completely ignored it because mm -hmm. when they adapted the show into a film they said all right gadget is the main character now hmm. penny is not even going to solve the crime. Mm -hmm. Not even by the end. She is barely going to be involved in this because she's just not in it. She I has no. She was in there. She has a handful of scenes, none of which are pivotal, none okay. of which are if, ever affect the plot. Okay. Brain the dog shows up at the very beginning and the very end. Mm -hmm. He is not there anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So already you've stripped the core of the show's premise and just tossed it out the window. Yeah. You took the name, you took the character and his abilities, you took the uh, aesthetic of his outfit, mm -hmm. which they also changed, yeah. and you you plopped him somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And potentially the worst change is Dr. Claw. You see his face. You see everything. He is not intimidating. He is not villainous and ominous. He's a goofy, dorky guy with a goofy, dorky sidekick. Mm. And the only reason he has a claw of any kind is because his hand got crushed by a flying bowling ball. Is that how it happened? Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. I thought, like, Inspector Gadget caused him to lose his hand somehow. He Well... Yeah, in the very opening scene, Dr. Claw, uh, which I believe his in-universe name is Sanford Skolex. <laughs> such, a, <laughs> such a terrible late 90s evil name. Oh, my God. Sanford Skolex. Uh, he's in his, uh, his limousine with, like, a control panel in front of him to control little robots and shoot off pyrotechnics. Of course. And he's stealing a robotic foot from another scientist. Okay. Um, to help him apparently build an evil army. All right. Of robot... Uh, soldiers. Soldiers. Which they never explain in the film. You just Why kind of have to... foot? Because it's, it's the most advanced robotic foot ever built the technology in it is so pivotal to making this robot army work oh my god but this is all this all has to be inferred because they barely ever explain this in the film hmm. you just have to pick up oh that's why he's got this this and this and that's why inspector gadget is uh, such a thorn in his side hmm. 
and then they show Gadget's origin story, mm-hmm. where he is. Um, no, I remember this part. He was like a cop, but then he gets, he gets, the car gets like blown up or something, right? Right. He's chasing after Skolex in his limousine, mm-hmm. and a rocket shoots off into Gadget's car, blows it upside down. A sign falls on the car, and then another. I guess another rocket flies into it and blows it up and nearly incinerates the poor guy. And so then um, Dr. Brenda Bradford brings his body into um, into the, the hospital mm-hmm. and they decide to use his dying corpse. He's not dead yet, but he's yeah. nearly there. His dying corpse to turn him into RoboCop. But for kids. But for kids. Oh and we'll, we'll shove all of this... Uh, you know, goofy uh, carnival trinket crap into his fingers, and we'll give him extendo arms, and we'll give him a helicopter in his hat. And oh, I remember that helicopter hat. He would like hold it, and it would fly him around. Yep, it's in the cartoon. Works in the cartoon. Kind of works in the film, but some of the stuff that he does does not does not work. Mm. And overall, the humor in the film is what really gets to you that's super cringy because they they tried to impart their own physical humor in mm. the film and none of it lands mm. it's it's all a bunch of mugging for the camera all a bunch of reaction shots a lot of slapstick that's not necessarily handled by slapstick people all most of the jokes just fall flat mm. and of course there's that whole scene where god i forgot this was in the film there's a scene where gadget is trying to control his abilities because he can't quite figure out the servo motors mm-hmm. through his musculature, what's left, mm-hmm. to control how things move. Mm-hmm. So he's in there with some Indian guru with his eyes blindfolded, and the guru's telling him, uh, reach for the object in front of me and extend your hand to go for it. You know, some, some, That's what mm-hmm. he's trying to do. Don't reach over, don't bend over, just let your arm slowly extend to the object and pick it up. But then Gadget goes a little too fast and grabs the guy's nuts. Of course. Because we had to have crotch humor in the 2000s. This course. was a terrible time to make this film, too, because the early 2000s was so awful with adaptations. Mm. What was it? You had Master of Disguise just a few oh, years later. Oh, God, that is one of the worst movies ever made. And that's not an adaptation. That's just a shitty comedy. That's just awful. Do the turtle. Turtle, 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 turtle. Um, I never saw it, but I think by 2005 or six they made the Thunderbirds movie. Oh, right. I forgot about that. And that you could almost do better... In, in almost any way, because I know that th- there's a lot of love for the marionette puppets, but it was such a, a clunky, slow show mm-hmm. that you could probably improve it in a myriad of ways, but... They somehow didn't. Not until the Amazon series, I guess. Oh, oh I forgot there was an Amazon series. Uh, So, some additional changes. Uh, Gadget is not played by an actor that has comedic timing. Mm-hmm. Matthew Broderick may be an endearing actor, but he's not exactly likable in this, mm-hmm. nor does he have the personality, nor does he have the voice of Gadget, which I think you can forego 
the voice because it was so cartoony. It was so intrinsic to Don Adams uh, having done that voice for so many years because mm-hmm. that's not even how he sounds. That's just what he got stuck with once people knew him as Maxwell Smart. Mm. But uh, as long as you maintain the uh, the the sort of aloof, uh, oblivious, focused on the mission personality, mm-hmm. then it works. But even when Matthew Broderick tries to do that, you just don't buy it. Mm. You know, when, when he's ignorantly chasing after people trying to steal a car, mm. he, he doesn't realize that they're bad guys at first because he, he thinks that they're just trying to Jimmy the lock to get into a car. They lock themselves out of. And then he realizes <laughs> Is that really what he thinks. Yeah. Oh my God. And then he realizes, wait, they're wearing jail uniforms. Now I'll run after him. Is that the scene where he like extends his legs? Yes. All right. Yeah. Stop in the name of the law. But um, that scene defeats the point that was made in the cartoon. He's never supposed to chase after the actual bad guys. He's always chasing after someone who isn't doing anything wrong. Mm. So already. That's a problem. That's a problem. Something else I realized many years later Gadget is basically an Interpol agent. He goes all over the world chasing after leads on the the mad organization. But in this they made him a cop. They made him a cop in a small in a small city called Riverton. So we we've basically I don't necessarily want to say neutered but we've short it. we've shortchanged his scope and effectiveness uh, within the world that he lives in. Here, he's just a, a local hero, whereas everywhere else, he's an internationally known uh, investigator, mm. you know? And it was a, it was a world-traveling, map-hopping show. We didn't stay in one place. Mm-hmm. And may, I, I don't think they necessar- it necessarily would have made the budget any higher to go to other places, but maybe it did. Mm-hmm. I don't see any logical reason to place the film in one place to make it in one city unless they just felt they wanted to build a a more personal connection with where he lived. You ever think maybe they were planning on having like more sequels, like where he went international and stuff? I have no idea. They made a sequel. I forgot they made a sequel. And I actually like the sequel more because they fixed some of the things that they screwed up in the first one. Really? Penny is a wannabe investigator, so they involve her more in the plot. Not enough, but just enough for me to say, all right, I'll give you a a point for that. Dr. Claw mostly hides his face because he's a different actor. Mm -hmm. And French Stewart, as Inspector Gadget, is a much better casting choice. Mm. Because he has, when I really listen closely to his performance, he has the right mannerisms in his voice hmm. that sound like what Gadget would have sounded like. His costume was a weird choice, too, because in the movies, you can afford to make any costume you want. Mm-hmm. But they they somehow thought, okay, we'll take his his gray hat and his gray outfit and what, he, he's, he's got a hat and a trench coat. What are trench coats normally colored? Tan. <laughs> Let's get a tan trench coat. What are hats normally colored? Brown. What's his last name? Brown. Let's get him a brown hat. Uh, so they foregoed the... That's not even a word. I keep thinking that's a word. 
they did away with the gray outfit for a tan and brown one. And I never understood that. Hmm. I never understood that aesthetic change. Well, I've been one the one rambling on this. Do you, mm-hmm. Did you have any thoughts related to it? Anything you recall that stuck out? I don't remember much about it. What I do remember, I remember specific moments. I remember a weird moment where he's waking up from the hospital bed and like his hand extends into all these weird things, including like a, a bubble blower for some reason. Yep. A little then, squeaking like, duck, a pair of tiny scissors. Yeah. A bunch of ridiculous stuff. And then like he has trouble moving around and like you see like a monitor of his brain or something. Right. Um, and I always thought that what he was trying to get was some sort of diamond. I didn't realize it was a foot, but I thought it was some sort of diamond thing that Dr. That claw wanted, but no, yeah, maybe not. No, there was no diamond in this one. There was in the sequel. Okay. Um, I just remember it like seeing it a few times as a kid. I do remember. Oh, you know what? I also remember. It was either maybe on Easter or my sister's birthday, but something that my parents were doing when my sister was very, very little. And I just decided to start playing it in the living room because I guess I was a little kid. I did whatever. But God, I haven't thought about that movie in years. But yeah, I'm sure it hasn't held up. Hmm. No, not really. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, the effects are still good. That I can say. Are they? They are, oh. genuinely, because some of them are still live on set effects. Mm-hmm. Others are CGI. There's a mixture, and you don't see that too often. Okay. Um, it's the story. It's the characters. It's, it's the just acting. the the yeah. It's those are the issues. Visually, the film holds up just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than the weird close-up mugging shots. Hmm. So yeah, I think we've we've found that adapting a cartoon to live action is, without a doubt, extremely difficult. It can be if you want to make it difficult. Well then, but would you agree that in general, it's the attempts to adapt cartoon to live action have in general failed? Yes, and I would uh, contest that partially why they fail is because you simply shouldn't adapt certain things. Mm. Just don't even bother, because it will not work. Yeah. Uh, And I figured out why. Why? Why would you ever adapt Garfield? Genuine question. Why would you ever adapt Garfield? Money. That's the only reason, because you know, that's the only reason. But other, creatively speaking, you want to hear his voice? You want to hear him talk? He does talk. No, that's true. He just doesn't move his mouth. And, And John doesn't hear him. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine why. I mean, yes, money is everything. But uh, but outside of that. Outside of that, because we will never get anywhere if we... Just the answer is money. Yeah. Because that is the answer for a lot of these, is money. I'm going to, just for the, just so I know, I'm going to look up... And that got a sequel, too. Unfortunately, yes, it did. I'm going to look up how much money the Garfield movie made. Oh, that'll depress you. Look, box office, if I've learned anything, box office numbers in general will just make you sad. Like when you learn that like the eighth flipping Transformers movie made a ton of, was like one of the highest grossing movies in 2016. 
Well, it quadrupled its budget. What was its budget? Fifty million. <laughs> so it made two hundred million. Wow. Let's see what. Uh, just for comparison's sake, how much? Because this was in two thousand five. How much did X Men make? Oh, I'm gonna be sad. Two hundred ninety-six million. How much did it cost? Seventy-five. So it quadrupled its budget pretty much too. Yeah. All right, so that's relatively comparable for the era that it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, how much did Inspector Gadget make? <laughs> I'm sure it did well. 134 million. Okay, how much did it cost? 75. I didn't do so well. No, that kind of just doubled its budget. Yeah. Wait, how much it, did it make? It, it it didn't even double its budget. Mm-hmm. 134. Yeah. Not quite, no. No. But that's it's a it's a negligible I don't even know if it's negligible. It's a it's a smaller gap between those two films than I thought. Mm-hmm. But again, why why would you think you should or could adapt something like Garfield versus something like the Mutant Ninja Turtles. All I can say is the answer is money. It really is. That's why people do these terrible remakes, these these things that have definite established fan bases, where they know can, they can get a cash grab, especially if it's for kids. They know it'll make money. They yeah. know it'll at least earn its money back. Now, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we have seen that work, and I'm not just uh, I'm not just talking about the latest one that came out talking about the older one which hasn't held up very well sure but as a kid you cannot deny that you loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie Mm -hmm. so it is possible for some of them not many but some of them to adapt a cartoon as far as I know um they did it right fans of the original cartoon loved the movie yeah and the movie in its base elements accurately represents the cartoon the characters in the in the turtle suits fantastic technology for the the heads the animatronic faces yeah shredder looks like he should shredder looks terrifying in that movie doesn't yeah doesn't sound necessarily like he should doesn't have the same army of mutants like he should Mm -hmm. so they downplayed that i guess for the sake of well let's not build all the animatronic suits yeah that would have been hard to do and splinter is not a full-grown rat he's a he's a puppet in this one but Mm -hmm. he effectively works too you know what made it i know this sounds crazy what made the teenage mutant ninja turtles live action work is they embraced some grittiness of it. They were like, okay, if this really ha they actually made it slightly more real world based. Mm-hmm. Which I know we've been arguing against that, but oddly enough that worked. Yes. Because you you are you are embracing certain aesthetics of the original property and even the original comics yeah. in that case. So if it is in line with what I would call it is a, is a margin of acceptable aesthetics. Mm-hmm. You can either go slightly right in this direction or slightly left in this other direction. You can go more serious or more goofy depending on if it works well, if it combines well with the core of the property mm-hmm. as an adaptation. 
And I think that's a margin that you have to consider with any of these. Mm-hmm. Live action Kim Possible. I finally watched it. I heard it's terrible. Yeah. What I what I was uh, pleased by, though, was that the casting was near perfect. Okay. Surprisingly so. Mm-hmm. It actually worked. Uh, Ron was a little over the top, but he had the right sound and he had the right energy. Uh, he was too hyper mm-hmm. for the character, but he was there. Kim, I, I feel like she undersold me on her abilities because she, she relied on a grappling hook sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Kim ever had a grappling hook except in a few rare instances. Mm-hmm. But they made it a gimmick for her. Her gymnastic abilities only really come in like the second half. Shigo was awesome. Shigo sounds and acts exactly right. Okay. Draken uh, doesn't always sound right, and he certainly is more goofy than he should be, but mm-hmm. he made sense to me as an alternative. Everybody else was just kind of, eh. See, what I would have done for a Kim Possible movie is it's years later and she's a grown-up spy now. That's what I would have tried to do. I think that would have been a wiser choice. Yeah. Because why are you trying to appeal to... Or she's the, in college. You can do college if you yeah. need to. Why are That's you trying acceptable. to appeal to the youngest audience who has probably never yeah. watched Kim Possible? Yeah, the audience has grown up with it. Right. Yeah. Put her in... Yeah, actually, that's even better. Put her in college. Because that way you still have the school dynamic mm-hmm. in its own way. Yeah. And Ron is like... Maybe it's a long-distance relationship they're trying to... I don't know. Like, he's... Well, I think that was an issue they were concerned about at near the tail end of the show is where are we going to college? Oh, really? Interesting. Yep. Even when they were, because they're already going out by that point, we yeah. are in a relationship. What might happen to us now? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's there's some other instances because the Kim Possible movie was directed by the original creators. I heard about this. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And that's disappointing because they got the casting right, but they didn't create a story that you necessarily would have told in the original show. You might have, but you sure as hell wouldn't have shot it this way. Mm. I mean, you, you, you design a cartoon a certain way with certain kind of shot designs and aesthetics, but you don't carry that over into live action. Why would your cinematography have to change? Because mm. all of these Disney live action TV movies kind of all look the same. That is true. They probably use the same production house, obviously. They might use the same cinematographers, yeah. Yeah. So, I tried to write a list. It's not as polished as I would like, but I wrote a list of necessary questions for how to adapt a cartoon specifically into a -hmm. a live-action film. I've thought about this for many years, so I wrote this list based on questions I think are open-ended, but also very specific to the adaptation sort of situation that you may find yourself in. Mm -hmm. And I realized the very first question you must ask is, uh, should I adapt this at all? And the specific way I worded it was, is the cartoon a fantasy, sci-fi, adventure, horror, action, romance, or otherwise genre-heavy program? Or is it a gag-heavy comedy focused on humorous exchanges? Those are uh, two different questions, but then there's two additional questions. 
Does the show construct itself upon a foundation of unique premise and style? Or does it construct itself upon jokes, while any style is merely a wrapper for the delivery of said jokes and could be exchanged for any equally appealing wrapper? So those are four questions, A, B, C, and D. Okay. Then it asks, if you answered yes to question A and question C, then you should move forward uh, to the rest of the questions below. What's A and C again? A is, is the cartoon a fantasy, sci-fi, all these other genres? Is it a genre-heavy program? Okay, yes. And C is, does the show construct itself upon a foundation of unique premise and style? Okay. So if yes, then you should move forward? Yes. Okay. Then if you answered yes to B and D, then you should stop immediately. Your cartoon of choice has no business becoming a film. So then technically under that logic, Sonic could work. Yes, because Sonic lives in a world where he is a walking, talking, anthropomorphic animal with animal friends trying to stop an evil, mad scientist who is turning other animals into robots. Okay. And every location you go is some strange amalgamation of different architectural elements, foliage, cities, chemical plants. I mean, there's clearly other people that live in this universe, but we just don't see them. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on there. There is a an adventure, a story that is trying to be told, characters setting out on a journey. Mm-hmm. I understand. I understand. Garfield is a comic strip mm-hmm. with jokes and gags about a cat who is lazy and hates Mondays and eats lasagna like a madman. So do you think then, though, are you, is this rule only if the adaptation is live action? As opposed to what? The Peanuts movie. The Peanuts movie. I would also say that a movie is not necessary in that particular case. The earlier televised specials, mm-hmm. um, I think, did something more unique. Like Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown. I remember that one. Created an adventure for these kids and mm-hmm. still kept you know, jokes just like they would in the strips, but it created an adventure that fit them. Mm-hmm. And, and made sense. The, there's, of course, the Christmas special, which is a good short. I yes. Think. And I will continue by saying that you can't put Garfield in a similar adventurous situation like Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, because it doesn't make any sense. You, can, you could technically take a cat anywhere, put him in any situation, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't add any impact to his life. He's a cat. He's a normal cat. Like he he is a a pet. Yeah. If he was an anthro cat, maybe. So you don't think if if Garfield was animated entirely, including the humans, that it still wouldn't work? What's there to get excited about? Garfield fans seeing their characters move around and talk. How long does that last? Enough for a movie, I think. I, I I'm just saying. Like, I'm wondering. Do people? Here's what I'm. Here's what I'm asking. Here's the broad text of what I'm asking. Would people accept these adaptations more from video game or comic strip or book or even TV show if it was just turned into an animated movie? Would more people accept it? Or is it the live action? They would last the test of time better. Mm -hmm. They very likely would. If If you animated Garfield in 2D or 3D and everything was that way, 
Probably. Yeah. But again, almost any time that you make a full-length feature film out of a cartoon, you have to ask yourself, okay, can these characters go on an adventure that fits the expected format of a, of a feature-length movie? Because there's usually higher stakes... They usually have to change and learn something as characters by the end when you you don't necessarily mm-hmm. have to do that as strongly in a episodic series, mm-hmm. uh, especially Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Because mm-hmm. when you take the Jetsons or the Flintstones and you give them a movie, which they did, mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself, what are we going to do with these characters that will change them by the end and make them different people that will give the audience an, an emotional response. And I understand that. I just think it's interesting when you said if it's adapted into an animated feature like a movie, that it, that it would, that would, they would last the test of time more. And I would argue a step further is that people in general are uncomfortable with animation being turned into live action, but they're okay with the reverse. They're okay with live action being turned into animation. Yes. But also, for some reason, I think a lot of the, a lot of the problems we see with these live, adapt- like if if the exact same premise happened with the Inspector Gadget movie, mm-hmm. and you make it either two D or three D animated, and you literally change nothing else, I would argue even you would like it a little bit more. That is true. I would still cringe at you Sanford cr- Skolex. Yes, and you would, would cringe that they show his face. I'm sure. Yes, because it, in especially in animation, that would be a pointless change, even more so. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And you would be mad that they didn't include the niece as much. I'm not saying that your right. your your concerns or your issues with it are invalidated, but I do think there is an argument to be made that. The most dangerous aspect about adapting a lot of these movies is taking the 2D or taking the animation and making it live. That is the most dangerous part about it. That very well could be. Yeah. Now that you still have to, yeah, because a lot of these questions here are solely about bringing a cartoon into live action. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I get that. The, the, the story questions I actually tacked on at the very end because okay. then you're getting into, okay, what sort of story must we tell in an hour and a half to two hours that mm-hmm. benefits these characters and may even take uh, conflicts and story elements from the show and expand them into mm-hmm. something that, that fits this format. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's a very exciting part once you get past the aesthetics. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. An- animation... If some of these films were just solely animated, they would be slightly better. Um, and and that pe- doesn't negate anything you've said so far. It's just mm-hmm. there's even like there are live action movies that exist right now that weren't adapted from anything where you look at it and you realize it would have been better as an animated movie. What's an example? An example is actually, well, okay, this kind of falls back into sort of what we're doing, but. Do you remember the movie Punisher Warzone? I actually never saw any of the Punisher films. Okay. The Punisher Warzone movie, which, yes, is based on a, on a comic book. Absolutely. Kind of ties into what we're saying in a way. But the Punisher Warzone movie is bad, without a doubt. A lot of problems with it. But 
if it was animated, more specifically 2D animated, it would have been more accepted. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have saved the movie. There are a lot of problems. But the villain in Punisher Warzone is so, like the final villain, he's so ridiculous and so strange. And the premise also of Punisher Warzone is so strange because it's dark, but it's a little weird. It's just really, it's not even hokey. It's just weird. But in an animated movie, we would have accepted it in a form kind of like we accept any of the 2D animated Batman movies where, yes, it's, a, it's dark and a little odd, but we embrace it because I think our level of disbelief in animation does go down a bit because there's a level of reality that's moved, removed. Exactly. And that's, that's not a criticism of animation. That's a benefit of animation. Yes, it is. But I think that is something to consider whenever adapting something in general. It's, if you are so dead set about making a feature movie, one of the questions I think, instead of never doing it, I think if, and maybe you've already, you're going to cover this, but you need to see is, okay, I can't do a live adaptation of this. Can I do an animated feature version of this? And, you, and directors absolutely should be allowed to explore that option for something they want to do. That is a, a question I have asked when I'm thinking about the Pajama Sam game. Because I personally hope one day that a film of the Pajama Sam, No Need to Hide When It's Dark Outside game will be made. Because I think that game is so whimsical and so well crafted that it should have a movie. And I think the current owners need to consider making a movie out of it because it could do rather well even as a unexplored property like that. Now with that, would you make that live action or animated? I had considered live action, but because the main character is so unique in his appearance, he's a he's a blue-skinned kid with hair that just sticks straight out of his forehead. Yeah, there's no defining moment. There, there, yeah, there's no defining edge. It's just that's his shape. I think you have to animate it. I think you have to animate it uh, fully CGI yeah. in order to keep the aesthetics as they are. The only way you wouldn't do that is if you did a live version, you'd have to give up so much of what makes Pajama Sam Pajama Sam that it's a totally different movie at that point. You might. But because at he, that point, is it even worth it? you wouldn't be able to paint his skin blue and make it work because it would just be kind of cringy. Even would, though they be... did like the Gamora thing? Yeah. You don't we think that would We can do work? it well because the Marvel films have proven you can, but it just, it still wouldn't play off well because what do you do with his hair? His hair is the in these two distinctive chunks, a big stalk here and a tiny stalk back here. And if you want it to smoothly transition from his head, well, you kind of have to do a mystique thing. Well, and that could look a little creepy. Yeah. Well, then here's the question. Do you admit, let's say you did a live version and you did the Gamora effect, but made him blue. Right. And his skin would, fine, would look great. Would you then maybe have to, in a sense with the hair, just kill the baby a bit, realize that you can't exactly get that. Yes, you would have to adapt the hairstyle into something different, but something that had still had a, a, a whimsical, a whimsical bounce to it. Sure. You would have to 
comb it in a different direction and affix so it in a different way. What if way. you made it relatively normal hair combed in that way with like maybe a blue streak dyed or something? You, it'd probably be more like a, not exactly a pompadour, but something that kept his hair rather high, but then curled it over mm -hmm. like, like Superman's hair. Yeah. But then after all of this, you, you, and this is something you would test. Let's say you finally figured it out, but then would you be able to objectively look at the kid actor playing him in the full outfit? And would you be able to objectively say, wait, even though I achieved this, it doesn't look right. It looks weird. It looks off. Maybe it even looks creepy. Would you be able to willingly say, okay, it has to be 3D animated? Yeah. You would, okay. Because the way that I would want to approach my own films, because I haven't made very many, <laughs> is I would want to do pre-production tests. I would want to do makeup tests. I would want to do costume tests. I would want to work things out beforehand and be sure of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And then if I have to scrap it, I would. Because if I don't feel in my gut that this is working, then it's not working. I need to change it. Now, what if you felt it was working, but everyone else was telling you no? In that case, I would have to do a lot of soul searching. And, yeah. and, uh, I'm only doing that because clearly the Sonic guy thought this was the best thing, but I have a feeling a lot of people were like, hey, buddy, this ain't right. We may never know. We may. I just like That's what's frustrating. That we may never really know who, because uh, I can't believe that no one else criticized anything. it yeah. before now. Well, then you wonder in certain situations like that, like what was the boardroom like? Right. Was questioning potential was questioning someone potentially being fired. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. I get I get the idea where if you're on a set of a bad movie and you know it's bad, but you've seen what happens when other people question it, you just stop and be like, all right, it's a paycheck. It's a chance for me to work in the field I like. I'll just do it. Yeah. And here's the thing. Plenty of people will do that, and I will never fault them for doing that. And this guy had only had a short film credit before he made this movie. Are you serious? He worked on one short film, one animated short film. Now he has this for some reason. That's another thing. Whenever <sighs> directors need to prove themselves more before being given something big. Nowadays, it feels like they either make some movie that does really well in festivals or they do some short that people like or they do like one other thing. Maybe a couple things, and then they're either hands handed off this monstrous budget or a property that's so intrinsically loved that they're gonna fail. I feel like I've like, heard you know it I mean? before, but they yank them out of those early instances and give them a big project because they want a yes man. <sighs> that's upsetting. Like they want somebody who is so eager to be in the big leagues that they will just, just say yes. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, okay. And I've discussed this movie a lot in general, but there's a movie called good time, which I feel was one of the most ignored movies of 2017. I think is when it came out. Mm -hmm. I think it came out in 2017, but whatever year it came out, I think 2017, it was one of the most ignored movies of that year. And that movie has these really fascinating sequences of Robert Pattinson running throughout New York City and everything around him just sort of blurs and stretches in this really cool, weird way. And it works in the neon. And, and also, the the way he runs, it also... What's the word I'm looking for? The frames sort of mess up a bit. 
So it actually captures the hysteria that he's going through when trying to like solve his problem. And it's just a really cool effect that, that they did on an incredibly cheap budget. Mm-hmm. So DC saw this and it's two brothers who directed this and they went to them and said, we want you to direct the flash. And they were like, cool and great. Here are our ideas. And one of the quickly, they dropped it. And when asked, the brother initially just said, oh, we weren't down for what they wanted to do. We'll obviously never know what that was. But you can tell DC saw what they did. And when you see that one effect, it doesn't take a genius to realize that that running effect is the only reason, and maybe the neon effect too, why they chose them to direct the Flash movie. Why they optioned them. Why they optioned them for that. But then you can tell with how quickly the brothers dropped it, that how immediate the the creative differences were, Mm -hmm. that I'm almost relieved they didn't do it. Because it's, someone once told me, you know, they no longer really pay attention to who's directing those superhero movies, Star Wars, supers, uh, Marvel, DC movies, things of that level, even a Disney movie, like of a like when they're, you know, the, the princess movies and Lion King. They say they no longer really pay attention to who the director is because usually, with exception, but usually, it's not the director's movie. They're just saying yes to what the producers want them to do. And they're just getting the job done. And that's all. Kind of like with, um, what was it? Oh, Black Panther. Great movie. I loved it. But I've seen the director's other movies, and they're way better. They're more interesting. They chose that director because that director saved the Rocky franchise by making the first Creed movie. Like, brought it back to life and really did something creative with it. Now, you can tell he had a lot of creative control over Black Panther, but when you learn that the original cut of Black Panther was three hours long, you know there was a lot cut. You know it. So it's like, is it really his movie at that point? Like with so much extra he wanted to include. Don't a lot of movies have four-hour cuts? Do they? I always thought like some did. But four, I always thought like they were like, on general, the, the regular cuts were like two-ish hours. I never knew three or four hours. The common number I hear is something between three and four hours for Whenever they bring it up, really, it's three and four hours. Now that could always be the exception because we're pointing it out because there's so much footage. But yeah, I would I would think any film uh, would have roughly that much compared to its two hour ultimate runtime. Because why wouldn't you? You you tend to have sure, all but- these scenes that you would like to include. You don't know which is necessary, so you work. You massage it down to what is absolutely pivotal. And sure, but I don't know. I just feel like at that point, if you're cutting so many, like multiple hours of a movie out, does it work with so much missing? And I guess so, apparently. But I feel like I always thought when you cut down movies like that, you get the Ridley Scott effect, where like the original cut of Blade Runner was longer, but they cut it weirdly and it only the final cut works. And the same with... Um, kingdom of heaven and so forth so i never i didn't really ever think that that was common but if it is that's kind of surprising but i can believe it i guess well now that i've uh now that we've answered question number one <laughs> um which i suppose we need some other we of need, 35 we need a few other examples of of because um, <clears throat> most shows are going to be a and C. They're going to be high concept, high 
very ultra genre shows that you can easily build stories from because they're full of them anyway. Mm -hmm. So they have to be action, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, all that jazz. If it's just a slapstick comedy... It doesn't really work, for argument's sake. Not necessarily, because you also have... um, You have the Looney Tunes, and you have Space Jam. You have Dilbert, and you have Office Space. Obviously not related, but you can see where it could work. True. And with Space Jam, it is trying to slap a strange story on top of the Looney Tunes or throw them into a very, very unconventional premise. Mm -hmm. But it works because it's so insane and we were all really young when we saw it. Yeah, that's the other thing. So the nostalgia factor... The nostalgia factor has captured us, and we can't get away. Yes. <laughs> We're trapped. And if a movie like Space Jam came out now, if that movie was released today, yeah. I would still be mesmerized by it, because it's just too weird not to enjoy not to enjoy in some capacity. That's fair. We don't get that weird much anymore. The thing is, those are what we call a unicorn. They almost don't exist. You've heard yes. of them. Yes, even Looney Tunes back in action uh, has has some redeeming elements. Does it though? Does yeah, it? when you really think about it, it's something about it kind of works. Is there any talk of doing another Looney Tunes movie? There's still talking about Space Jam 2. Oh right, I forgot they were thinking about that. Um Oh, that's right. I I can't forget um the Jay Ward films, George of the Jungle, mm-hmm. Dudley Do Right, and Rocky and Bullwinkle, right. which all came out about six years apart from each other. Um, George of the Jungle was the most successful. All three of them, even though they're all directed by different people, mm-hmm. I believe, they all maintain the same kind of humor and the same approach to their their expansion of the stories, mm-hmm. but... George of the Jungle was the more successful because somehow it's the most insane. Hmm. It, it 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 completely breaks the fourth wall constantly, at least from the first chunk and then the later chunk. In the middle, it's kind of normalized, mm-hmm. but the narrator is always ever-present. The gags are always slapstick. And something about the sincerity of George's progression as a character and his development of the relationship uh, with Ursula, something about that works. Hmm. Uh, But only in the 90s. I don't think you could pull that off today. No. The 90s was a very special time. (laughs) Uh, It was before really good special effects. It it was in, yeah, because the the CGI elephants don't hold up today. Nope. They're, They're very plasticky looking. Yeah. Um, yeah, they look bad. And Rocky and Bullwinkle, I, as a child, I was fascinated by it. As I got older, I was frustrated by it. But with some recontextualization, it's an accurate adaptation of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Because if you tossed those characters and the humor, the type of humor that you would use into a modern film, then it hits all the right marks. It's just the humor isn't for everybody. Mm. It is on the nose. It is kind of cringy at times, but it's hard to say if you could do it any other way. Mm. 
And so you either do like that or you don't if you're going to bother to adapt you do, it. They do like that. And in some cases, yes, I will say you either like it or you don't because it is here. It does exist. So you either like it or you don't. <laughs> uh, if we can avoid making certain films from the beginning, I'm a little happier because mm. then I don't have to bitch about it. Mm. But in Rocky and Bullwinkle's case, in Looney Tunes Back in Action's case, both films, I feel, do what they need to do. They could be better, but they are all right mm -hmm. as they are. And I am content with that. Sure. It's stuff like Kim Possible where I say... Pump the brakes. Yeah, there, there's not enough here for me to be happy. And it's hard for me to say if there's enough here for anyone else to be happy. Mm -hmm. Because there's not enough of the charm of the show here. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to Framing the Shot, Episode 4, From Cartoon to Live Action, Part 1, with my guest, Cotton Chivarelli. Join us next time for part two of this discussion, where Cotton and I will begin the process of conceptualizing and shaping our own adaptations, hopefully into something with potential. Thanks again for tuning in. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to see discussed on this show, please be sure to leave a comment or send a message through my social media links. There are so many incredible aspects of the filmmaking process that need deeper discussion, so I hope you'll come along for the ride. And that's a wrap, everybody. We'll see you next time.